Welcome to the Children's Book Author Podcast. I'm your host, Eleanor Page. If you write for children, or it's always been your dream to, you're in the right place. As the children's book author, I'm on a quest to discover everything there is about writing, publishing, and marketing children's books, as well as how to supercharge my creativity, skyrocket my productivity, and absolutely everything else there is to know about how to be the best, so you can be too. Join me as I interview fabulous guests and become the children's book author. Welcome to episode one of the Children's Book Podcast with me, Eleanor Page. Before we launch into our first interview, I wanted to give a bit of a backstory because this podcast initially started off as Creative Genius at Play. And even though I am a children's book author and have been for the last, oh gosh, six, seven years now, I think, my interest at one point really went to trying to be a better creative overall. And so I had this fantastic idea to start Creative Genius at Play podcast and make it all about creativity for everyone. And after recording 15 episodes, I kind of ran out of oomph. I just didn't really want to do anymore. I think that's kind of common in lots of creative fields And often it tells me personally, I don't know if you can relate to this, but for me, that's often a sign that it may not be the right thing for me to focus my creative energies on. So after leaving the podcast alone for a year and just allowing it to simmer there quietly and waiting to see what the next inspiration would show me, I woke up and thought, do you know what? My greatest thing, the thing I'm obsessed with is writing children's books. It's what I do for a living. Why aren't I just focusing everything I've got on that? And rather than start the whole podcast from scratch, because the 15 interviews that I did are absolutely hugely relevant to children's book authors, they were amazing for me. I decided to include them in the podcast. So you might hear me say throughout, creative genius at play. That's because they were recorded with that podcast in mind. I have edited out the very beginning of the podcasts because that's where I introduce the creative genius at play podcast and am now doing these intros to every podcast episode just so I can touch base with you personally before the interview begins. And yeah, so let's begin. Episode one is with Jessica Brody. Now, Jessica, I had her on another one of my podcasts and I was so thrilled when she agreed to be on this podcast, episode one. I mean, what a legend. Not a lot of people agree to be interviewed on episode one, especially when they're so established in the industry as Jessica is. They often, people will often want to go on a podcast that has a lot of episodes and shows that it's going to have a long life ahead of it. So it was incredibly generous of Jessica to be on the show. She is an amazing author. She's published, written and published over 20 novels for teens, tweens and adults, so many go check them out. You can see them in the show notes. I'll have all the links to that. And we do talk about this in the interview, which is amazing. She was hired by Disney Press and has written several books based on uh, very popular Disney franchises, such as Descendants and Lego Disney Princess. I mean, wow, how cool is that? And she's also the author of the number one best-selling plotting guide for novelists, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. And that book is everything to me. I I tried so many different ways of plotting out books until she wrote that book. And there is Save the Cat in general, which is still good, but wasn't as helpful for me until Save the Cat writes a novel came out. And Jessica wrote that. And I have that like a Bible next to me when I write anything and everything 
from picture books all the way up to my middle grade novels. And then on top of all that, she is also the founder of Writing Mastery Academy, which is an online learning platform designed to help writers break through challenges and ultimately achieve their goals. And that's definitely on my to-do list to join the Academy. I've been putting it off and putting it off. But now that I've made a bit of space in my life, I'm 100% going to join. I encourage you to go check it out. So let's dive into the interview with Jessica. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn a lot from it on your quest to become the children's book author. I think of you as one of the most creative people I know. Hence, when I decided to start this podcast, you were one of the first people that popped up in my head. You do so much as well as teaching. Tell me a little bit about your journey and all the things you've accomplished, of course, all within an hour. Don't take the whole hour, but <laughs> but tell us about your journey. Thank you for that lovely uh, compliment, and I'm, I'm pleased to be uh, one of the early guests on your podcast. Um, yeah, so, well, my journey kind of starts out a little bit generically in terms of I was, you know, trying to get published, and I, I worked as a financial analyst and wanted to be a writer and uh, got rejected for years and years and years. And we've heard that story a million times. Um, the, the sort of uh, pivot point for my story or the catalyst, I guess you could say in, in save the cat terms was the introduction of, uh, of a book called save the cat and a screenwriting book that somebody gave to me way back when in my, um, published frustrating publishing journey when I was trying to get published. And, uh, they said, you know, this might help with your novel writing, even though it's for screenplays, because it's really all about structure. Um, and I read the book and it did kind of change my life because, you know, not to, not, not to be, um, not to speak in hyperbole, but it really did. Um, in that I learned about story structure for the first time, I realized what was going wrong in my current manuscript. I rewrote my manuscript based on this save the cat structure method and I sold that manuscript and I've, you know, sold over 20 novels since to, to major publishers. And, um, you know, I kind of, I always look back at that moment as, as, as the, the place where it all kind of fell into, it, well, it all kind of came together. Um, and I've just been writing ever since I, you know, I've dabbled around in different genres. Now I, I was writing originally women's fiction. Um, and then I switched to young adult contemporary. I've now done two sci-fi trilogies, um, and uh, I've also started writing from middle grade, um, which is the eight to 12 year old uh, age group. So I've just been dabbling and I don't know what my next challenge is. I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I want to write a murder mystery, but I've never done that. So we'll see. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that attitude to just take on new creative adventures and not be necessarily scared or intimidated by that. How do you find that confidence to do that? Um, it's definitely come over, over the years, but, um, for me, it's just all about play. You know, I know you're, that kind of fits with the name of your podcast, but it's, I just like to play around. And, uh, so many of my projects just start out as me kind of quote playing around and then become more of a serious thing. Um, when I wrote my latest sci-fi trilogy, um, it's right behind me, Sky Without Stars is the first one. Um, it's a sci-fi retelling of Les Miserables and, um, I'd never written a kind of out of, off planet, like other world type of fantasy, um, or sci-fi. And it was very scary. Um, I co-wrote it with a friend actually. And at the beginning we sort of just were like, let's just play around. We both had other things going on and we said, let's just see what we can come up with. And it started out kind of like just a game and we just had a lot of fun with it. And then it, it coalesced into a, into a real book and we ended up selling it, um, to Simon and Schuster. But at the beginning it was like, this is fun. Like, let's just have some fun. So I think for me, the, I, I chase the ideas that sound fun, um, especially the new ones. Cause I, I would never write something that I think is like, you know, on trend or, oh, those types of books are doing really well. I'm going to try that because I know that's going to be disastrous for me. Um, I write the things that I, I've been reading a lot of murder mysteries lately that I've just been really like, this is fun. Like, I love reading these. I wonder if it would be as fun to write them. So that's where I kind of I approach it from. So you're really following that inner excitement and passion. And I would imagine you need to have that because otherwise maybe writing, finishing the book won't get there. Like it'll fizzle out and you perhaps won't have the enthusiasm to keep it going. Or if it's, a, as you say, a trilogy, if it didn't start fun, then do you find that maybe, have you had an experience like that at all? 
Well, but it's absolutely true. I mean, if you don't have that initial uh, excitement for a project, um, you'll never, well, I don't say you'll never, it will be very hard for you to get to the end because the, my thing is, you know, I always say inspiration runs dry really fast. It, it's completely fickle. You can't rely on it. I always say like inspiration is the worst roommate because they just like, they leave messes, they disappear for, you know, weeks at a time. They don't leave rent checks. Like they don't leave notes. Um, and, and then, you know, you're stuck by yourself having to like deal with this book. Um, but the thing that I say is always reliable. You can always count on is your own discipline. And, so, you know, you have to kind of have that from the start in order to push you through. But then at the same time, you have to really, in order to have that discipline, you have to really love what you're doing. Um, so just to say like, oh, you know, Gone Girl is a really big book. I'm going to write a Gone Girl, you know, because I think it's going to be successful. Um, it's going to be hard to follow that through with, if you if you didn't start out going, I want to write that kind of book because I think that sounds like a lot of fun or I think I'm very inspired by that idea. Yeah, and I've done a few of your courses, which are amazing. It's And I'm not just saying that truly like I am a fangirl of your courses because what I love about them is they're, they're so practical and you can absolutely tell that you've been in the trenches, had that problem, and then found your own solution to that problem and then thought, I wonder if there's other people with this problem as well. <laughs> so um, some of the ones that popped to mind that I've done from you, you've got so many, and now I love that you have them all in the Writing Mastery Academy. There's plug. Uh, but truly check it out, people, because, you know, I don't recommend people there lightly. Like every single course in there is like, in my opinion, should be a $500 course. They're so good. And I go so far as to say that if you if you went through those courses, you'd probably start to know what you were doing creatively and get some of that creative confidence that you really want. But the two courses um, that spring to mind as you're talking is the one about coming up with uh, book ideas and also the productivity one. And I mean, they're different from each other, but Let's start with the one about coming up with ideas. It's um, Tell us a bit about that because I, I found that course really unique and super important because if you don't come up with a good idea to start with, then as you said, maybe your book's not going to get sold. Maybe it won't sell if you publish it yourself. Maybe you'll run out of enthusiasm as you're writing. Um, it's just a fantastic concept and really key that you remind people come up with a good idea first people or you can't market and sell it yeah that was actually uh it's it's called um develop blockbuster ideas that sell and that was sort of my first uh my first ever course actually um i love doing the courses and and you hit it right on the head that's exactly how i build my courses it's based on problems that i have or based on problems people come to me with and say you know, I'm struggling with this. And I, and I think, oh, well, yeah, I've struggled with that too. And here's how I dealt with it. And then I turn that into a course. Essentially, those are the nuggets that start all my courses. Um, but, um, Blockbuster Ideas course, you know, it comes from the, the, it comes from my philosophy that there's sort of two sides to to the creative process. And that is, there's the, there's the business side of it. If you want to turn it into a business, that's not to say that you have to. I, I'm a firm believer that if you want to just write just because you love to write, then that's what you should do. Um, but there's people out there like me who want to turn it into a, a, a business and they want to make money from writing and they want it to be their uh, full-time job or a secondary job. Um, and so I come at, um, that course is specifically designed for those types of people who love the creative process and love to brainstorm and love to come up with exciting ideas, but then want to make sure that they are on a track that they're going to be, you know, that, that gives them the best chance of success of using that idea to, to turn it into a business. So, um, that's why it's called blockbuster ideas that sell. And it's just all about this concept called high concept ideas. And this is an, in, this is a term I did not make up. It's a term that they've been using in the industry for years. Um, essentially high concept means it's an idea that you can explain to someone in one sentence and they sort of immediately get why it's going to be good. Um, and that's a very, it's a very abstract concept uh, idea that you, this idea of high concept. And so what I try to do because people, 
myself included, didn't really understand what that meant. I try to break it down into these four ingredients of a con- like, you know, I kind of looked at all the high concept ideas I've sold, all the high concept ideas that I've loved that people have called high concept. And I said, what do these things have in common? And I break it into these four ingredients. I teach those ingredients. And then I have like brainstorming exercises that are all based on ways that I've come up with book ideas. Um, to help you kind of pull out from your life, from your experiences, from things you see, from the newspaper, like things that you can use to brainstorm these kinds of ideas that have the best chance of getting sold, whether that be to a publisher or if you publish it yourself to readers. Yeah. And it's a really, like, I find the process of the course is a creative genius at play course, you know, because it is essentially very playful and it's a merging of things and you come up with a result. Whereas what I find is most of the things out there say, oh, to come up with ideas, you know, like read the newspaper. And I'm like, read the newspaper? Nah, did I? <laughs> you know, um, it's that it's almost like that. It's It really is genius because you're you're saying, hey, take a whole combination of stuff. And you do that so well with your books. Like every single one of your books is essentially that high concept that you're talking about it's this real fusion of um, like the movies we watch we think we're clever very simple you know we often our favorite movies have a really simple concept but it's so different because they've just merged those two different things so amazing 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 and and really really uh, reminds me about um how you actually can find your own unique style as a writer because what I merge and make as my story is not going to be what you choose to merge and make your story. So talk to us a bit about how you found your unique style as as a creative. Well, you know, I, I get this question a lot, actually. It's like, yeah, I know, it? I mean, I'm, I'm still <laughs> looking under the, every rug I can pick up. Um, it, I, I get it. I get asked a lot, like, how do you find your voice? How do you find your creative, um, you know, style? And this is one question that I, I haven't figured out how to answer yet. Once I figure it out, I'll make a course, but, um, I haven't quite, <laughs> I, will buy that course. I, I haven't quite figured out how to answer that question apart from a lot of trial and error. And I know that's not like a, a super practical or, um, straightforward answer, but you know, I think you, I think a lot of us, we dabble and we try different styles and we emulate different people to realize that we can't write the way they write, but it's like, it's all practice. And, um, when I first started out, you know, all I wanted to do was write Bridget Jones's diary. And I tried so hard to write Bridget Jones's diary and, you know, as Jessica Brody's diary or whatever. Um, I tried so hard and, and the book that I was writing at the time, you know, I was even pitching it. It's a Bridget Jones's diary in Los Angeles. It never sold. And I think because I was trying so hard for it to be something else. And it wasn't until I kind of realized that I had to just write what I wanted to write and, and let my own style show that I, that I kind of was able to sell something. Um, but that being said, like it's constantly changing, you know, with every book I write, it's sort of a different style. I, I try, the reason I love genre hopping is so that I don't kind of get stuck in this one type of writing or this one style of storytelling or this one voice. Um, I love trying different things so I can keep it fresh. Um, but yeah, I can't, it's hard to tell people how to find themselves. <laughs> it's like, how do I find myself? Um, you just have to keep looking. <laughs> yeah, keep looking. And I've read, I did do my homework before I got onto this interview and uh, read some of your fiction books. And again, what jumped at me was that even though there's, I suppose you could say a similar voice, you know, you can, can you tell that Jessica wrote it? Maybe. But for me, and maybe this is a thing unique to writers, uh, it felt like there was a, like I could really hear the character's voice. So in other words, like I think what you've gotten so good at, probably taken years, well, I don't know, tell us how long did it take? You Like, in fact, do you need to have your own voice or do you need to get really good at capturing that character's voice of the book you're writing? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, I, I feel like when I start a new, a book, when I start a new book, there's always sort of a, 
like a transition period where like, it's like all of the voices are kind of coming out at once. And it, it depends on the book. Cause there's some books that I'm just like, the voice comes to me right away. I, I, I like wake up with a line in my head and I write it and it just, everything flows from there, not everything, but it starts to flow from there. And those books are few and far between. Um, the one that comes to mind is a book called that I wrote called the chaos of standing still, where I just sort of started writing it. And this, it felt like this character was speaking through me. Not all books. That's one of the ones I read. That was one of the ones I read. That was probably I, why. It, it's sort yeah. of a special, it holds like a special place for me because it does, it so did feel strong. like one of those channel books. Yeah. Yeah. It read like that. It totally read like it. I was like, wow. It was like, I like, this isn't even her writing. This is completely the character. I wish that was like that for every book. It's not. Um, for a lot of, a lot of books, I have to kind of play around and sometimes the voice doesn't come until the second draft. You know, sometimes I'll be writing a book for months and I'll get to, you know, the uh, one line in one chapter and I'll go, there's, there it is. That's the voice. Um, and the character will say something or they'll comment on something or whatever, and it will pop up and I'll go, that, that's the character they just showed up. And then I'll have to go back and make sure that they're in the earlier pages. Um, so I think it's different with every project, but I think it is important that your 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 own sort of style comes through. I do. I definitely think I have a style, but then that the character is also showing through as well, and that's regardless of whether you're writing in first person or third person. There is there is a character in there that needs to that needs to show up as as well as yourself. That's really good advice, actually. That. Uh... I, I really value that you said that because I mean I'm much much earlier in my writing career, and and I'll often just sort of think maybe I'm not supposed to be a writer because that like I try to get that character and I'm like nope they are not cooperating. But so sometimes with some books it might actually take time to discover them. Yeah, and I think that. Um... A lot of times I'll be writing something and, you know, the voice, I, I just sort of am telling the story at the beginning, um, whether the voice is there or not. And then I'll meet someone or I'll get a fan letter from, from a reader. And there's something about the way that they talk in their email or the way that somebody is like, and I'll be like that something will, will connect in my mind and go, Oh, you know, it's not like that person becomes the character, but there'll be something about the way they said something. And I'll go, that's what I need. That's what it's missing. Um, so I think it's not just in the playing around with the writing, but just keeping your eyes open because we are surrounded by characters. Um, and I actually remember this happening with my book, 52 reasons to hate my father. I was really struggling with there's, um, interstitials in the book where it's, uh, a recording of the character doing a video. So this was long before video was like, we lived in the zoom world. I wrote this book in like 2010. Um, but I was trying to find a way to kind of create sort of an interstitial where the character could really interact with the reader on a much more informal way. And I couldn't figure out what that was. And then there was this, um, teenager like friend slash reader that I had and she used to send me these adorable little video messages she would record on her phone and and mail them to me or something and they would just be these rambling like free thought like she would just go off and then you know she would interrupt to be like yell at her cat or whatever it was and they were so freaking adorable and I thought that's what it's missing it's missing that like just real life person and so I created this idea of this girl is leaving video messages throughout the book. And the, the thing you see in the book are the transcripts of the messages. Um, and, but again, it just kind of, I was already done with the first draft by the time I got that idea. And then I had to kind of work it in. Wow. That's so clever. I love again, see, there's that almost curiosity. So you'd be so good at writing that murder mystery. You are like a little detective because you're looking at the pieces and going, Oh, that bit and that bit and that bit and just merging them into your, into your current project. And, and I think that's so true. When you're writing a book, it feels as though your life becomes the book, every bit of information, you know, like I bet the sort of, the, the more kind of spiritual people would be like, the universe is sending me this. But essentially, it's a bit like when you buy a car, isn't it? When you want to buy that car, you start noticing every other car that is like that. It's where attention goes, right? The information follows. Now, the spiritual thing might be true. I'm not discounting that for all you spiritual people out there. But essentially, it is so much about that attention 
So when do you write one book at a time and is your creativity completely centered on that one book you're writing or do you have multiple projects on the go? I try to draft one book at a time. It's very hard for me to be. Um, so I, I sort of divide the book writing process into two parts, drafting and revising. And I, cause I do feel like they're two different skills and they require two different writers. So I almost feel like I'm a different person when I'm revising a book than when I'm drafting. Um, so I try to only draft one book at a time. Um, because I think drafting is sort of when you are the most in the character's head, um, because you're trying to really navigate the world through their eyes and you're trying to come up with ideas that they would do and things like that. And so I feel like that's when you are the most immersed in it. Um, when you're revising, you're also immersed, but you're on, you're immersed almost technically. Um, you're immersed with, you're trying to figure out the little nitty gritty details. You're trying to figure out the plot and how it intersects. And you're thinking more like a writer, I think, um, and a, almost like a, like a builder and an architect. So, um, I feel like that is a different skill and I'm able to, if necessary, I'm able to draft one book and revise a different book, but I don't love doing that because it does sort of, it just takes away a little bit of the magic, um, that you get to spend that, that time. Like you said, you, so much of what we write is, is not when we're writing it. It's when we're just out in the world and, um, or that time when we used to go out in the world and now we're stuck inside, but, um, you know, just so you're like everything you do, you're doing with the through the lens of this of this project. Like every movie you watch, you're watching through the lens of the project. Every person you meet is a potential new character. So I think that immersion process is 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 so fun and magical that it's it can be for me anyway. It can be it can kind of disrupt it when I try to work on too much too many things at once. But given my deadline schedule and the fact that I have a hard time saying no to projects. <laughs> um, I, a lot of times I do end up with those overlaps that I have to manage. I love that you made the distinction between the almost, I won't say one's creative and one's not. I think they're both cre aspects of your creativity, but very different aspects of your creativity. As you said, the drafting sounds from what you're telling me, and I'm just learning so much from chatting to you about this, that it's really playful. And I know I gave the podcast that title, but it kind of came to me not because I did a lot of study and thought that's what I'll call it. It just felt like creative genius wasn't quite enough. That just sounded a bit harsh, whereas the at play part is that part. And I love that you then go, that's okay. And I was very playful, but now I'm going to put on that almost creative genius hat and be really tough love here and edit these things so that it makes sense to the reader and that the reader now enjoys it. Yes, it's absolutely true. You're, the first draft you're drafting for you and the second draft you're drafting for the reader, I think. Wow. Okay. I said that by accident, but there you go. No, that's, but you, you hit it. You hit it. It's almost like the first draft is the, the one you the one where you're the playful writer and the second draft is the one where you're the serious writer. It was like, okay, this scene was fun, but it doesn't really fit the plot. So it's got to go. <laughs> As you said, you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of timelines that you have to meet and you're not sort of just leisurely writing books at your own pace like I am. Uh, you are actually meeting your deadlines. And again, one of your courses is on that productivity, which I mentioned. Give us some of your top tips. For productivity. What do you do? How do you stay productive? Do you have blocks? Do you have like times where you don't write? I do blocks of my day. I divide the day into blocks. Um, and uh, the morning block is always my drafting block. So um, this is usually between like eight and noon. Um, and... Uh, so one of the things I do is this is like one of my really hard and fast rules, um, that I do share in productivity hacks. Um, but it's basically that the less distracted you are as a writer, the better writer you are and the more productive writer you are. So, um, I talk about in the class, I talk about how every morning that you wake up, you basically wake up with a brand new computer as your brain. So if you think about when the first time you got your computer and like how you, you open it up and it's just runs so beautifully and it's not, you know, sluggish and it doesn't get bogged down. It's not, doesn't have a ton of things loaded and you just, it just works like a dream, right? So if you think about your brain every morning, you have that. Um, but everything that you do throughout the day, like, 
um, you know, check email and get on social media and watch the news and read a book and listen to a podcast. Sorry. And, um, you know, all the other things that you're doing are turning on programs in your brain and they're taking up RAM and they're taking up, you know, brain power. Um, so if you want to get the most productive writing done, you have to do it before you open up any of those other programs. So it needs to be the only program running on your brain. So I highly recommend that people write first thing in the morning before they do anything else. That's what I do. So I don't open a single device except my laptop and my Word document. I don't look at a, I don't look at any news. I don't check my phone. I actually have my phone in a whole other room from where I sleep. I don't even look at it. Um, the only thing I do is I take my dog for a quick walk. I meditate and I eat my breakfast and then I go, right. Um, and I feel like that has been, I've been doing that first book I ever did that process for was the chaos of standing still. So, um, I feel like since I've been doing that, I think it's Jen since uh, January of 2015, um, it's just been a game changer. Like it's just, I can't even imagine how I wrote before this. Um, because it's just the distraction free writing is so you will just be amazed at how magical it feels, um, to be able to write with all the, you don't realize how distracted you are until you turn them off. And then when you write and you see the difference, especially after maybe not the first or second day, but after a week, um, although a lot of people who take the course report like day one, they were like, whoa, I wrote like 5,000 words. I've never done that. Um, so I think that any creative endeavor that you are taking on, it, I always, I challenge creatives. I say, what is your creative project the most important thing to you? apart from obviously your family and your health and all those other. But if you think about everything you have to do in that day, is your creative project the most important thing? And most people say yes. And I say, then why are you doing it after you're checking email? It, you're basically saying that your email is more important than your creativity. And you're letting that email take up all this brain space, which essentially all email is, is people wanting things from you. So it's, you're letting everyone else in the world dictate where your brain is going instead of you dictating where it's going and it should be going to your creative project if that is the most important thing to you. So it's just about sort of shifting your priorities and saying, this is most important. I'm going to dedicate the best of my brain to it. It's kind of really simple, but it's very profound. And I'd imagine some people will be like, what? Not even look at the phone? like not even glimpse at it. Uh, but you're right. I was terrible. I used to sleep. I mean, I, I say terrible and I'm going to say something and someone's going to be like, that's what I do. But I used to sleep with my phone next to my bed. Like most people probably do. Um, I would wake up in the morning. I'd grab my phone. I'd check email. I'd check social media. I would play a game of Candy Crush. I would do like a million things before I even got out of bed. And then I would get out of bed and then I would do, you know, my morning stuff. Then I'd do that all over again. And then by the time I got to my desk, I was so exhausted. I was like, I had no brain power left for my book. Um, so I started, the only way I could do it was to sleep with my phone in the other room. And, and I would actually put it, I don't have to do this anymore, but I would put it in a drawer so I couldn't even see it. Um, cause you see it and it's amazing how tempting, you know, you get, you see it in your periphery vision, you go, Oh, I have to look at it. Um, and I catch myself doing that sometimes still not in the mornings anymore. I'm past that, but like just throughout the day, I'll see it and go, oh, there must be something to look at. I'll go, I'll go grab it. But, um, but that's the thing that kind of keeps you from fully immersing with your creativity. I think. Yeah. Really, really powerful, powerful advice. And it does. I have read that the official thing on it is that it takes 66 days to create a new habit. Oh, is it 66 now? 66. It isn't that 21 day thing that, you know, all the, all the coaches jumped on 21 days to this and 21, day, 21 days isn't long enough to create an actual pattern in the brain where now you think you're choosing to get up and write and not do those other things, but actually you will have made the neural pathways in the brain that make it like impossible for you to resist. So remembering we've now got habits of getting up and looking at the phone or like you said, turning off all those other things. And there's so many books on like, you know, the artist's resistance and and blocks and creative block, you know, not being able to write. I'm wondering and I'm, I'm assuming it's true because you've experienced it, doing that process actually breaks away resistance do you like go to sit and think no nah, because you don't get distracted now you have to do your writing do you just do it 
Yeah, it's not even a question anymore. It used to be a question. It used to be a, oh, not will I write today, but will I be able to write today? Um, or what will come out? And, and of course, I never know what's going to come out. I never know if I'm going to have a good writing day or a bad writing day. And not all writing days are good. Um, but they're not all bad either. But I will say it's never a question of whether I'm going to get my writing done anymore. Um, and I get, you know, I usually try be- for between 1,500 and 2,000 words a day, um, which is, you know, sort of in the middle ground. I know people who try for 5,000 words. I know people who try for 500. It doesn't really matter how the number. You find the number that's that's comfortable but challenging for you. Um, and you know, I, I tell people once it becomes part of your routine, you don't think about it anymore. It's like, you know, it's like brushing your teeth. You know, once you're older than 10, you you don't like hem and haul over it. You're not like, oh, I'm gonna, I'll brush my teeth later. I'm not, no, I'm not gonna do, I'm gonna do a bunch of other stuff first. And eventually I'll brush my teeth. And then you like kind of go to the bathroom and then hold the toothbrush. And, no, I'm not ready. Like you don't do that. You just get up and you brush your teeth and you don't think about it. And, um, I think writing has become that for me now with this routine that I've set up for myself. It's like, I get up and I write and, and that's it. And yeah, some days are the writing is terrible, but I, I did it cause it's what I do. <laughs> um, and I think the more you can make your creative process, part of your routine, the less you do have to think about it and the less resistance there, there is just no resistance anymore no resistance anymore oh my gosh i so look forward to that day where resistance just goes away forever i'm not gonna lie and tell you that it's like every day you're like yay i get to write because it's not like that it's there is days where i'm like you know not that i there's not days where i go oh i i don't think i can do it today there's days where i'm not as excited to do it there's days where i sit down i'm not that excited about the scene but it's never a question of will i or won't i i just do um, so I will say that that's the caveat. It's that the resistance is not that it, it tra- kind of changes shape. Um, it's not that I, it's not that I'm like every day, like, yay, writing. Cause that's not the way it goes, <laughs> unfortunately. No. And that's, I mean, I, I have heard other people say that they've read back over their writing and they actually couldn't tell what they wrote on their good or bad days that actually some of the bad days good stuff came out and some of the good days bad stuff came out (laughs) so it sort of starts to merge a little bit um that's terrific so tell me a little bit about because I have to ask I saw that you've been writing for Disney Oh my goodness! And the descent. My daughter. She said, "Who were you interviewing?" And I said, "Well, Jessica's written some of the Descendants books, and she's like, OMG, because she loves anything Descendants." So, how did that opportunity come about? What was that like? Was it different than your other books? Um, what's the process like in writing for Disney? It was a magic. I haven't I haven't written for Disney in in a few years now, um, but I. Um, they actually approached me about this series, the, um, Descendants, uh, School of Secrets, which was like a spinoff of the Descendants movies. So I wrote five of these for them. Um, and I also wrote some fun, um, Disney Lego princess chapter books, oh, which are, wow, you've done which are for much younger readers. As you can see, they've got cute pictures. And, um, so I wrote a few of those, but, um, yeah, they, they, they came to me and they said, I, I just started writing for middle, middle grade audience. And they said, are you interested in uh, doing a project like that? Um, they go, typically people ask me all the time, like, how do you get to write for Disney? It typically goes through an agent, not all the time. Like if you, if you happen to know an editor at Disney and they, they know you're writing, like they might come to you directly, but typically it goes through an agent and a, like Disney or whoever the publisher who's doing the project will reach out to agents they know and say, do you have any writers who would fit? And then the agent kind of pitches a few of their, their clients. Um, so this one, I knew the editor through a friend. And so she, uh, came directly to me, but that's not typically how it happens. Um, and she said, are you interested? And I said, yeah, I'd love, I hadn't watched the descendants. I wasn't, I mean, I'm a big Disney fan, but I was a little behind on that universe. So I watched it and I was like, Oh God, this is actually really good. Um, and I, uh, so I said yes. And then, you know, I had to sign all sorts of non-disclosure documents and all these things that I wouldn't, you know, talk about anything. Um, and I, uh, they sent me, um, they sent me some ideas. I think we worked together on outlines and everything has to be approved. It's, 
it's a lot more rigid of a process. Um, when you write for yourself, you, you know, it's like, you can do whatever you want. You can change the story in the middle. You can put new characters in. It's not like that with Disney. You, um, it's, I, and I'm not just saying Disney, it's anytime you're writing for a franchise, you know, there are rules, you have to follow the franchise and everything has to be approved by the people who, um, who run the franchise. So, you know, we would do in, uh, my editor and I would do, um, outlines together and then they would go get approved by whoever needed to approve them. And then I would start writing and then she would edit the book and then the book would get approved. So there was always sort of an approval, uh, process. And, um, although I was really excited that there was one book that, um, I got to create a town in the descendants universe. Um, and it's this town that, um, that Allie visits and now I can't even remember the name of the town because I wrote it so long ago. I think it was called, um, Louisville or something. It was named after Lewis Carroll. But um, anyway, so we, we put, I put the town in and then I was sort of like waiting for Disney to go, no, we don't like that. And uh, it, they didn't. So they were like, They're, that's fine. And so I have now this town in the canon that I, um, that, I, that I put in the book. So that's kind of fun. Like things like that you get nerdy about. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting though, as you say, the levels of approval. Do you not have so many levels of approval with a, a traditional publisher? Because I've not been traditionally published. So do you like finish the whole thing and then sell it to them? Is that the difference? There's two ways you can do it. Uh, you can sell a full book, um, which a lot of writers prefer to do it that way. Um, I sell on proposal, which means that I sell typically when you sell a first book, it's always done with a first, with the full book. That's kind of the, the rule. There's always exceptions, but usually when you're writing, when you get to be published, they want to read the full book. But once you're sort of established, you can sell on proposal, which means that you sell based on um, usually like a short synopsis, like three to five pages, although mine are always longer. And, um, and like the first anywhere between 30 and a hundred pages of the book. And um, so you can sell it sort of based on the idea. Um, so that's how I prefer to do it these days. But uh, a lot of authors don't like doing it that way because um, it puts a lot of pressure on the author because if, you know, they, they'd rather have it be done and they can write it on their own time and then they can sell it. Um, when you write a proposal, you have basically an idea and then you go and sell it and then they give you a deadline and then, yeah, you have to write to that deadline. Um, I actually like that because it lights a fire under me and I'm, I work good on deadline or work well on deadlines. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's more pressure that way. Um, I prefer it because I'd rather know upfront if the book's going to sell before I put in like all of that work on it. Um, but it's really up to the author and how they want to approach it. Yeah. I was wondering about that because if you just did this beautiful masterpiece, but then you couldn't sell it, that would be a little bit soul crushing. It, yeah. And it happens a lot. You know, it happens. Um, the, the one book, so funny, it keeps coming up, but the one book that I wrote on my own time since, since the beginning of my career, I should say. Um, and I sold as a full book was the chaos of standing still. And that was just one, again, it just sort of, that voice came to me. The story sort of came through me. I, and I was loving writing it so much, um, that I didn't, I, I talked to my agent about it. I said, should we send this out? And he goes, I have feeling like, because you're talking about this book in such a different way, like you're, you said that you're feeling different when you're writing it. Let's not mess with that. Why don't you finish it? Um, and then we won't be putting that extra pressure of the deadline on the book. So it ended, that was sort of a rare case in a lot of occasions, but almost every other book I've written has been sold first and then, and then written. And would you say that you're guided to some extent by uh, the, the business side of, so which books are selling, you know, which of my books are selling so far? What should I write next? Or are you more guided by wherever that creative spark takes you or a combination of both? It's definitely a combination. As I said, like, you know, if you want to make a living, you kind of have to think of both. Um, I don't recommend you sell to trends and you just try to write the book that you think is going to sell. But I also don't necessarily recommend that you go like 100%. This is the kind of book I want to write because they may not be buying those kinds of books right now. Like it'd be really hard to sell a dystopian novel right now. Maybe they're coming back around after the pandemic. I don't know. But, um, but you know, for a while it was like, everybody was selling the dystopian novels after the hunger games and divergent did well. Um, and then you could not sell a dystopian just like you could not sell a vampire book like a couple years after twilight. So, 
Um, there are certain things that sort of go secular like that. Uh, doesn't mean you will never sell it, but at the moment, you know, they're not buying it. There was a book that I, an idea that I loved, and it was a tech thriller um, about hackers, teen hackers. And my agent loved it. I loved it. And we shopped it and all the agent, all the publishers were like, we're not doing tech thrillers because they had, they, there was apparently there was a big tech thriller. I don't know what it was. There was a big tech thriller that didn't do well. So it just, you know, you sort of never know. So on, on one hand, you do kind of have to follow your gut, but on the other hand, you kind of have to follow the industry too, and sort of know what you have the best chance at. Um, for me, I always loved writing like the really light comedies. Like I wrote a bunch early on in my, in my teen publishing career, I wrote the karma club, my life undecided, uh, these sort of pinky ones over here. Um, I loved writing those and then they didn't really sell as well as I think the publisher hoped. Um, that's when I switched to sci-fi, which sold better. And then when I went back to contemporary, um, it was all about more serious contemporaries, more dramas, deeper issues, um, and so that's when I wrote the chaos of standing still and the geography of lost things. Um, but I love, I still love writing those really light ones. So now I write them for the middle grade audience. So my middle grade books are sort of lighter and funnier. So it's, you know, you can always kind of make it, I think you can always kind of make it work. You just have to figure out where it goes. So for those people that don't know, cause some people still haven't worked it out, you are the person who wrote this extremely popular, popular, popular book. I think it's backwards to the audience that are watching, but it is, I will read for the listeners, Save the Cat Writes a Novel, the last book on novel writing you'll ever need. And I can honestly say this is my highlighted, you know, like super worn out. Look, it's got ink stains on the front just to prove I am a writer. And it, it, like I did read Save the Cat, which, you know, was written by Blake Snyder. I hope I said his name right. I did. And and I thought, oh, yeah, that make, I mean, it was amazing, like what the amazing moment you had. But when I tried to apply it, I couldn't quite. And then I read a few other ones and I sort of merged them all. But the minute your book landed in my hand, it's the only book I have next to me as I'm writing. So if I'm writing and I get a bit lost, I'm like, so hold on, what, what happens again in that part of the book? And I mean, I've, you know, I've written 20 books myself now, but, but really only one, two, like four or five sort of novels. And, um, cause they're the ones that really need the book and I'll get stuck, still get stuck. And I'll be like, so what happens on that bit? And I mean, it's so, it's written in such an easy to understand language. It's, it's so when I followed that book and I ended up writing Evie Everyday Witch Secret Magic, which is my best selling book on Amazon. It was because of this book. And and I'm normally a pantser, so a pantser just sits down and writes whatever they want um, with an understanding of story structure. But when I wrote Secret Magic for Evie, I actually used that formula and I plotted it. I went this, she's going to go really good for the first half of the book and then it's going to go really bad for the second half of the book. And it's almost a bit rudimentary, like it's almost too structured and yet, that book works beautifully. So, you know, tell me, how did you come about, you know, getting to write this book? Has it changed your life? How, what has it meant for you personally? Well, thank you. I'm so happy it's helping you. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's, I hear stories like this and I just get all the warm fuzzies. Um, cause the book, the save the cat method is really what changed my life. So it's, I, I loved the idea of being able to kind of pass it forward, the, the magic. Um, I, I got in touch or I got sort of connected with the Blake Snyder's people. Um, he passed away in 2005. Um, and I think it was 2005, 2009, 2009, sorry. He passed away in 2009. Um, uh, at that point I had already written a couple novels using Save the Cat and, um, I had done a blog post about, how I used Save the Cat to write a novel and they stumbled upon my blog post. Um, they asked if I could blog for them. So I started blogging for, for them. And then, um, then they asked if would you like to start teaching novelists how to use the method? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Am I really qualified to do that? Um, but I started teaching and I had so much fun teaching other writers the method. I had this great workshop style 
um, thing that I would do I almost monthly, I think, where a bunch of writers would come in with ideas and we'd all just like sit around and figure out what the beats were. And it was super fun. Um, I learned so much about how to apply the method to novels just by experiencing everyone else's stories and how they, you know, and because you get a little bit limited and you're doing it and you're applying it to your own books because you're sort of always thinking in similar ways. Um, so that really, I think, expanded it to the point where I felt confident that I was like, this book, this method is not just for me. <laughs> and it's not just for like the five, you know, people who are in my class this week. It's for all novels. And so um, at that point, I think it was sort of an obvious choice that we would write another installment. Um, so they asked the, the Save the Cat people and I, we talked about it and I said, I would love to write an installment. So we uh, pitched it and uh, 10 Speed Press, uh, which is a random house imprint, um, bought, the, bought the book. And so I was so nervous. Everybody's like, was like, Oh, this is going to be an amazing book and everyone's going to love it. And it's going to be like so helpful. And that was so much pressure. And I swear this, it's the funny part was I was so, so nervous not, like, about everything. But the thing that I was the most nervous about was my, uh, I break down 10 different novels in the book. Um, I do full, te- full beat sheets for 10 different books. I won't even get like, unless you want me to talk about, I won't even get into the process of how I picked those 10 books. Cause that was a whole puzzle that is, whoa, I have nightmares about that puzzle, but I picked 10 different books to break down. And, um, it actually started out where there was going to be 30 books that were broken down and then it got cut down. It was too long. So it got cut down to 20 books that were broken down and that was still too long. So we stripped it to 10. My biggest the thing I was the most nervous about was people were going to tell me I was misinterpreting classics. Um, they were going to be like, you don't know Stephen King. Like, how dare you break down Stephen King's book? And I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who are saying that not one has contacted me yet, knock on wood, but I was so nervous. And I think this was coming from me being not a very good student in English class. And my, (laughs) you took the words out of my mouth. I was thinking that sounds like English class. I had these like nightmares of my AP literature teacher going, because she said this to me. She, I remember my AP literature teacher telling me I, I did not know how to interpret Shakespeare. Like you don't know what shape, you know, and it was a whole thing. My mom got involved and said, how do you know how to, what Shakespeare meant? You know, it was a whole thing, but I think I was like scarred by this, this teacher who told me I didn't know how to interpret literature. And so that was my biggest nightmare is that people were going to buy this book and go, how arrogant that you think you knew what Jane Austen was talking about. And of course I don't, I don't ordain to say what Jane Austen was talking about, but I just break down the structure of her, of her book um, and, and use it to teach people how to write other, how to write their books. Anyway, long story short, it was a lot of pressure. Um, but then the book came out and I, and it was so, it's been so wonderful because people are, are finding it helpful, which is great. Nobody's, nobody's told me I've misinterpreted. I'm sure I have, but nobody's, you know, pointed that out. I think uh, it was like the same experience that I had with the original Save the Cat. And that's been so, so great. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's been amazing. I, I, I can't really say <laughs> more than that is, is that it's been really amazing. You know, that part where you broke down the books, I was like, wow, she's so smart. <laughs> How did she oh, know to break teacher. down the books? I could never write that part of the book. <laughs> that was, you know, I helped my son because he was learning from home a lot of this year with the lockdowns and we had to do Macbeth and so I helped him with it quite a lot and we only got 49%. And I was like, oh. Why would I be a novelist when I can't even analyze Macbeth? So, yeah, it is intimidating when I read that part. I mean, I think you've done such a good job oh, thank of you. breaking them down. And I guess it's, it's again, isn't it? Like we, it's an example of we discover our creative confidence with every new challenge we take on. And that was a new challenge for you. And yeah, it is a risk when you, you've got to throw that thing out into the world and be like, is anybody going to pick on this? Or <laughs> Well, the thing that I sort of came to terms with in writing it, but then also now that it's out is that when you break down other people's books, it's, it, it is in no way you saying, this is how you wrote it. You know, I'm not saying when I, when I break down, you know, I break down like, uh, the Kite Runner, you know, but it's a critically acclaimed, beautiful, poetic book. And I'm not saying like, call it Hassani, this is what I think you're saying. I'm more like, this is how I read it. 
and this is what I got out of it. And I'm using it to show how structure can be applied to all these different types of stories. And this is the structure that I noticed in this book. Of course, he could have his theme stated or whatever. Could He could have had a whole different idea if he even was thinking that. Um, but I think what's so great about it and what I urge other writers to do is to break down stories in your own. And it doesn't matter if it's right. It's just the, the act of actually breaking down those books taught me more about story structure than any of my own writing. So it's really just used as a tool to help us learn how to tell our own stories, whether those interpretations are right or not. It's sort of irrelevant. If you get something out of it and if you saw oh, that's what she thinks the catalyst of that book is, like, that makes me think what my own catalyst might be, then that's really all that that I hope get people get out of it. That's really, really valuable advice. Yeah, I'm going to take that on board and start breaking down and not be so scared that I'll get 49%. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> I, Jessica. I will say movies are easier. If you want to start on an easier place, break down movies. They're much easier to break down than than books. Let's use our last 10 minutes because I'm conscious of the time. I want to talk about uh, your courses. And, you know, course making is super creative and there's a variety of people that listen to, to this podcast. Well, I'm hoping there will be a variety of people that listen to this podcast. And so, you know, some people out there will want to make videos or do courses. Um, like, did you, was that tough to get started in that? Because standing in front of a camera, I mean, you're amazingly poised in front of a camera now, but was it always like that? Was that tough coming up with what to teach? Did you think, is this good enough to teach? Is it not good enough to teach? What was that journey like for you? When I talk to people about creating courses, I find that they fall into the people who are sort of afraid to get started. I think they fall into two different camps. One is um, expert syndrome and one is imposter syndrome. So the people who have expert syndrome are the people who know something so well that they don't understand that other people don't know it. So, it, you know, you, I have to constantly remind myself that the Save the Cat method is so ingrained in me that I don't even really think about it anymore. But I have to constantly remind myself that not everybody knows about this. Um, not everybody knows, you know, how these beats flow together and I still have to explain it. Um, so I think people who fall into expert syndrome are, they don't realize that they're such an expert that other people could learn from them. And, um, that's a very common thing is to not realize that people don't know what you know. Um, then the imposter syndrome is where you feel like you're not, you're not well-versed enough to teach it. What, what do I, what business do I have teaching this? I'm not the best out there. But the thing is when you teach, you don't have to be the best out there. You just have to be really good at explaining something. Um, and that is, and, and explaining something is really just about breaking it down into actionable steps, you know, like st going from A to B and B to C and C to D um, and breaking down and you can break down anything into a course if you know how to break it into steps um, for people to follow. And I think I, I sort of got a taste of that, you know, the save the cat method is naturally broken down into steps. It's 15 of beats. Um, so I think I'd already kind of been in that headspace of breaking down an entire story into 15 steps. Um, so that really, I think helps me create my courses is like, how can I break down other processes into actionable steps? Um, so what I tell people when they're thinking about creating a course, um, I just say, what do you know how to do that other people have struggle with? Um, and one of the quickest ways to do that is just to ask people what they're struggling with. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're a painter, like find other painters and say, what's your biggest pain point, pain point, pain point, pain point, pain point, um, yeah. not pain point people. what's pain your biggest point. struggle? Like, what do you struggle <laughs> with every day? You know, it's, Oh, I have struggled with, I know nothing about painting, but I, I struggle with cleaning my brushes. Well, I have a great tactic for cleaning my brushes, you know, then you can teach that. So I go out and I, now I have a great community through the writing mastery Academy. Um, I have a great community and I, and I go out with, we go out with surveys all the time. Like, what are you guys struggling with? That's what, how we create our new courses. Um, and so, but you don't even need that. You just, you need Facebook, you need Twitter, you need a community of people who do what you do and you ask them, what are you struggling with? And if you have an answer or you can find an answer and then break it down into steps, then you have a course. So yeah, how, so it's, it's it. kind of merging the, the the what matters to you with what matters to other people and and meeting their needs, as you say. Like, wow! And so it used to, your courses used to be on Udemy, but now they're on your own platform. And 
was that a was that like an amazing transition for you when you suddenly went I have the confidence to market this myself now it was a long time coming and it was I I worked with my husband he's my he's my business partner production partner um we had been talking about launching our own online school for many years and it was yeah it was sort of that well we don't have the time we don't have the enough courses whatever the excuse was and then we finally in this january so it's almost been a year now um january 2020 we um we decided to go for it and we launched uh, the writing mastery academy which you can find links to on jessicabrody.com um but yeah so we launched it and we did um we decided to do um an all access subscription based uh plan for $12 a month and you get access to every course you get access to all the webinars i do monthly webinars live so you can ask questions um and then there's all these other great features like we have a community in there with message boards people talk um we, i give out bonus content every month to members only bonus content there's lots of fun stuff and what was really important to us was that it was affordable and like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast which i forgot to reply to about you're like oh these should be $500 courses not maybe they should maybe they shouldn't maybe they're you know maybe in another reality they are um but i sort of have an issue with pricing courses pricing education really high and 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 even if it's high value i don't think it should be high priced um because I don't like the idea of creating content that is only available for a select amount of people who can afford it. I want to to create content, especially when you're talking about content that is going to potentially help people get a new, start a new business or launch a new endeavor or learn how to write a novel or whatever it is like, um, you know, that shouldn't be an elite price. I, I don't think it should be an elite price. I think it should be an affordable price. So it's been super important to us that we keep the price affordable to people. Um, and that's, that's our, our philosophy. So, um, it's really generous. It's like so generous because again, I, I can't, um, like I've bought a lot of different courses, but in all honesty, and that's why I asked you on the show, you know, because I only interview creative geniuses at play, <laughs> is uh, the value of them is like just Im- immeasurable and that they are so affordable makes them, you know, there's no excuse not to get them and not to do them. And, you you know, you cover how to make great characters, how to build terrific scene, I mean, like everything that, that you need so there's no excuse to not get better at your craft and now we also know thank you viewers that how to get productive so there's no point knowing it all if you're not actually writing words and i'm slapping myself in the face because i didn't write very many words this year um, i totally let the news bombard my screen first thing i know worst possible thing but you know i i needed that lesson i think and i needed that to recommit sometimes that happens as well but yeah, that the fact that the courses are so accessible with such incredible information. And there's a key thing that I heard there that popped in my ears really loudly, community. Uh, so I want to finish on that as the last thing we talk about, because I think it's just beautiful, wonderful. And the fact that you've got a good price point now opens up to a larger community. What's that been like having a community of other other writers to you know that you're helping and mentoring but that are also now teaching you and all those wonderful things that come from community it's so amazing it's um we have a really great community um we have some people who are really active on the message boards and some people who are quieter um we have people who will show up at every single webinar with a question and then i'll see new faces or new names um we have a um i think she's a 15 year old writer from india who comes to every webinar and she's so excited she stays up till like one in the morning her time to go to the webinars and she's so excited and she always has a great question so it's just i i start I'm starting to get to know all of these people. Um, they've become sort of like my extended writer family and I just love it. I like people will now it's gotten to the point where we've been doing it for a year. So people will come on and they'll have a question that month and I'll know, I'll remember like, Oh, I remember last month you were struggling with something different. So it looks like you worked through that and now you have this question. So it's just kind of fun to be part of everyone's process in whether I, 
whether I know that or not, you know, whether they're, they're active, um, on the comments or not, but, um, it, it has been really, really rewarding. You're such a warm, friendly teacher and mentor as well. So, you know, just we're blessed, blessed that you decided to teach all that, you know, because a lot of, a lot of creatives don't, a lot of creatives don't teach what they know. And, you know, you really open and honest about the pitfalls and the difficulties. And, you know, like whenever I get an email from your blog coming to my, you know, we tend not to read them, but I always read yours because it'll be like, I had this problem. I got stuck on this thing and I found this great solution. And I'm like, oh, less such a, it's so, it's so practical. So thank you so much for being on the show. I've, again, I learn so much from every time I talk to you. I know it's only been twice, but I feel like I've just known you forever. You're always so giving and kind and generous with your advice. And, you know, it's that five people that you know business, right? So by virtue of everybody that's listening to you will now be a little bit more inspired to get off and to, you know, get moving on their creative projects because you got to do it. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really, it's really fun. And as soon as your country lets me in, I'm going to come visit you. Did you find that interview valuable? Great. Now be an awesome human and go and leave a review because it helps the podcast out so much. Want to read the show notes? Check out thechildrensbookauthorpodcast.com. Want to find out more about me, Eleanor Page? Find me at eleanorpage.com or come and say hello on social at Eleanor Page Books. Until next time, keep writing and keep learning.